The Bible is too simplistic. It's so black and white. But real life is complicated and it's messy. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever thought that yourself? Or something like it? Well, the only response to statements like that or thoughts like that is to ask, have you read the Bible? Not just a few sound bites from it, like the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, but have you really looked into the length and breadth of the Bible? Because if you have, you will know the Bible is thoroughly acquainted with the complications and messiness of real life. Even the heroes of the Bible, even the families whose stories are central to the Bible, they're all up to their necks in complications and mess. A few hours with the Bible will cure us of the idea that it's too simplistic or that it's naive about real life. The passage we're going to read this morning deals with issues connected to unsolved murders the abuse of women, disadvantaged children, family inheritance issues, out-of-control children, and humane treatment of criminals. Are those situations messy and complicated enough for us? Do they sound modern and relevant enough for us? I hope so. And I hope that this passage alone is enough to show us the God of the Bible is fully aware of the complications and the masses of human life. And when he calls us to live for him, he knows often there will be very little that's ideal when it comes to our circumstances. I hope that encourages us and also shows us we have no excuse for giving up our calling of honoring God in a messy world. We're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 21, where Moses is continuing his instruction. He's preaching a series of sermons about how the Israelites are to live in the new home God is about to give them. If you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, it's page 198, or in the larger print Bibles, 304. We'll read all of Deuteronomy chapter 21. If someone is found slain, lying in a field, in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who the killer was, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke, and lead it down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted, and where there is a flowing stream. There, in the valley, they are to break the heifer's neck. The Levitical priests shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessing in the name of the Lord, and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then, all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer, whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. 
Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent person. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for, and you will have purged from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and make her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. If a man has two wives, and he loves one but not the other, and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves, in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is God's word. And no doubt it sounds very strange to us. That shouldn't be surprising. The God who understands the masses and complications of life is speaking here to the masses and complications of a particular time and place. A place and time that are long gone. But God himself hasn't changed. And what he calls his people to hasn't changed. So we can expect today to find guidance in this passage for our own place and time. And when it comes to honoring God in a messy world, this passage gives us two simple instructions. And these will help us as we seek to honor him even in the most messy situations. Deuteronomy 21 tells us, 
that God takes sin seriously. And so must we. And this chapter tells us God takes respect seriously. And so must we. First in verses 1 to 9. God takes sin seriously. And so must we. That statement seems almost too obvious to mention, maybe. But in fact, it's a statement we all need to hear often. Because we all have a tendency to convince ourselves sin isn't really very serious. Every day, our society is telling us that what the Bible calls sin is actually fun, or it's a joke, or actually it's good and healthy for us. And even if some things are sinful, they're not our fault, so we shouldn't worry about them. But here in our passage, we're given an example that leaves us in no doubt about the seriousness of sin. Verse 1 says, If someone is found slain, lying in a field, and the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who the killer was. That's the situation. Someone has died a violent death, They've been slain, which probably means they've been stabbed to death, and the killer is unknown. And we're to assume from what we've read in previous chapters that a thorough investigation has been carried out, but there are no leads. So what happens next? Well, today, we would probably call for an inquiry to find out who in the police force should be blamed for not finding the killer. We might call for better education at this point, give those school children even more lessons on knife crime. But what we would almost certainly not do today is worry about how this murder is offensive to God. Today, our society does take certain sins seriously, up to a point. But because we ignore the disruption that sin causes in our relationship with God... We don't take sin anywhere near seriously enough. And that's why these actions outlined in verses 2 to 9 seem so strange to us today. Because they're all about putting things right with God. They're based on the understanding that the most serious thing about sin is the offense it causes to God. The person most wronged by sin is God himself. And so what happens is the leaders of Israel are to figure out which town is nearest to the spot where the victim was found. And the leaders of that town then take responsibility for this ceremony that we hear about. They take a young cow, a heifer, and they kill it beside a flowing stream. And then the leaders wash their hands over the dead animal. The symbolism seems to be that the death of the animal carries away the guilt of the sin. Just like a flowing stream carries things away. And so the people represented by the leaders are then counted innocent. They have clean hands instead of dirty hands. The sin of murder had to be paid for. And since the killer can't be found, the animal is killed instead. And in verse 8, the leaders pray to God, accept this atonement for your people Israel. Literally, make atonement for your people Israel. 
The people understand only God himself can truly deal with the guilt of sin. The animal is a sign that they are taking sin seriously. But they realize a dead cow doesn't actually deal with sin. Only God can do that. So the people ask him not to hold your people guilty. And here's the lesson for us if we are going to honor God in a messy world today. We will not stop at considering what sin means on a horizontal level between people. We will always keep in mind that the greatest impact of sin is vertical. It destroys our relationship with God. And that will help us with one of the greatest temptations today. The temptation to excuse sin and explain it away because, well, life is complicated. Of course life is complicated. It always has been. But the complications of life do not diminish the primary effect of sin, which is to cut us off from God. And if we keep that in mind, it will give us some clarity in the masses of life. Sin is never good. It's never just a private thing. It is always offensive to God and destructive to those who are involved in it. And that's true whether we're talking about the sin of greed or sexual sin or any other kind of sin that is socially acceptable today. The social acceptability of those sins doesn't make them any less offensive and destructive. And as God's people, we have to remember that. Complicated situations don't make sin okay. God takes sin seriously. And so must we. There is more to be said, though, because what this passage goes on to show is that God takes respect seriously, and so must we. We're talking here about respect for others. Whatever messy situation we're facing, however far it falls short of what's ideal, when there are human beings involved, they have to be treated with respect. So yes, we take sin seriously. That is the first principle in every messy situation. We never downplay that. And at the same time, we find ways to show respect in every messy situation. Our passage gives us four examples to illustrate this point. They're examples taken from ancient society, but it doesn't take too much work to translate them into modern society. The first example is in verses 10 to 14 showing the need for respect towards the outsider. Or we could say the vulnerable, or we could say the foreigner. Look at verse 10. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Last week in chapter 20, we saw the instructions Israel was given regarding warfare. And we noticed there were two kinds of warfare. Or there would be two kinds in Israel's 
life moving forward, offensive warfare and defensive warfare. The offensive warfare was the conquest of Canaan, a war that was to involve total destruction because Israel had been given the unique role of delivering God's judgment on the people of Canaan. That was a one-time mission. It was not normal warfare. It was not the normal warfare Israel was to be engaged in. Most of their warfare would be defensive. There would be wars of national security when another group attacked Israel. In those situations, Israel was not to pursue total destruction. She was to fight according to the accepted rules of warfare at that time, which meant that she could take the war to her attackers to the point even of putting to the sword all the men who had engaged Israel in battle. And if we stop to consider what that meant, it meant that potentially all that would be left of that hostile group were the women and children. And what could happen next is the subject of verses 10 to 14. As we saw last week, the normal routine in the ancient world would be for the women to be raped in those situations. But God's people are to act differently. The instructions here do not forbid an Israelite man from becoming involved with one of those ladies. But if he does, she is not to be used and abused. She's not to be treated as a concubine, a kind of second-class wife who doesn't have the status of a real wife. That would be how things normally worked at best. But in Israel, a lady in this situation is to be given the full status and dignity of becoming a wife, with the full privileges of a wife. That's what the stuff in verses 12 and 13 are about, about uh, shaving her own head, trimming her nails, and putting aside her captive's clothes. That's not about humiliating the lady. It's about granting her full status as a member of the family. The symbolism is that she leaves behind what went before, including her pagan religion and its idol worship. She casts all of that off and she takes on a new identity and a new status. No longer a captured foreigner, but now a wife. It's somewhat similar to what happened to Ruth the Moabitess when she came to Israel and eventually married Boaz. You you can read about that in the book of Ruth. She was never a captive, but the way she was honored by Boaz shows what we're talking about here. Well, so far, so good, maybe. But what about verse 14? If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. This is about divorce. The Bible nowhere says that divorce is a good thing, but it knows full well that divorce does happen. It was part of the messiness of life in the ancient world, as it is today. And here in verse 14, 
provision is being made for the woman's protection in the case of being divorced by her husband. He's not to try and take advantage of her past as a foreigner by selling her as a slave. She is to be treated as a free Israelite. Her new status doesn't end because her husband has now mistreated her by divorcing her. That's the situation described in verses 10 to 14. Does it match our situation today? No, it doesn't. But I think we can see the principle fairly easily. This lady who, because of her past, could easily be preyed upon and taken advantage of and shortchanged, she is instead to be treated with the respect due to a full member of society. No one should be treated as second class or second rate, whatever the messiness of their situation, whatever the details of their past. Let's take that to heart ourselves. As we deal with whoever it is we are tempted to look down on and to disrespect. Verses 15 to 17 give us another example of the need for respect in messy situations. Respect for children. Verse 15. If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other and both bear him sons, but the firstborn is the son of the wife he does not love, when he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife he does not love. He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. So this deals with the situation of polygamy, the practice of having more than one wife or husband at the same time. The Bible never commands polygamy. In fact, it does the opposite. In Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of the Bible, it sets out God's design for marriage, one man and one woman. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we're shown the pain and the misery that come when men and women defy that design. Think of Abraham taking Hagar as well as his wife Sarah. Or think of Abraham's grandson Jacob marrying both Leah and her sister Rachel. Think of the strife that resulted from that. If you haven't read the story, you may remember Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Even that musical gives a sense of the aggro in that polygamous family. Think of Solomon and the disaster that came when he multiplied wives. The Bible is very careful to show that polygamy is an ugly distortion of God's plan for marriage. However, the Bible is also fully aware that polygamy happened. Just like it's aware that divorce happens and that children sometimes dishonor their parents and that murder happens. The Bible doesn't command any of those things, but it knows they happen and it gives instruction on how respect is to be shown 
even in the midst of those messes. And here in verses 15 to 17, the focus actually is not on the wives, it's on the kids. They are not to suffer because of the strife between the parents. Actually, it's better to say they're to suffer as little as possible. The mess their family is in will affect them. This is about minimizing the mess. The father is instructed not to favor the kids of his favorite wife at the expense of the kids of his unfavored wife. Specifically, the true firstborn is not to be demoted just because his mother is not the favorite. Now, it was certainly an honor to be recognized as the firstborn, but it came with responsibility too. The reason the firstborn was given a double portion of the inheritance was because it was his responsibility to care for his parents in their old age, to bury them, and then to lead the family after they were gone. Of course, today we don't officially hand those kind of responsibilities to the firstborn. And do we have polygamy today? Well, in certain parts of the world, yes, definitely we do. And here in the UK, the practice goes on unofficially in some communities. Don't be surprised if it gets official approval before too long. At the moment, though, it's probably not really an issue in many of our families. But we don't need polygamy or rights of the firstborn to know when marriages tear apart, it's almost always the children who suffer most. And that is the concern of these verses. Even if a mess like this should happen in Israel, a mess where there's a distinct lack of love between the parents, the children must be shown respect. And that means not using them to score points against the other parent. We've all seen that happen, I'm sure. And if you're a parent in that kind of situation and you are committed to honoring God in a messy world, then commit to respect your children by not dragging them into the relationship war. In the words of the New Testament, do not exasperate or embitter your children by doing that. There are logical steps that connect these sections. Verses 10 to 14 dealt with respect in marriage. 15 to 17 with parents respecting children. Now in verses 18 to 21, the focus is on children respecting parents. Verse 18 says, If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Just to clarify, these verses are not talking about minor or even medium level issues. 
This doesn't happen because the son refused to eat his cornflakes before school or because he borrowed the car without asking first. These verses have in mind extreme behavior and not just a one-off case of extreme behavior. This is a lifestyle that has become out of control despite the parents' best efforts over time. Verse 20 says he's a glutton and a drunkard. Those are examples of the kind of thing that might be mentioned. It's not suggesting those are the only things that qualify as deeply stubborn and rebellious. Whatever the specifics, the situation is serious. It has gone beyond the parent's ability to address it. And in desperation then, they hand the son over to the leaders of the time. It seems the son's behavior is publicly notorious. The whole community is well aware of it. Maybe the whole community has suffered because of it. And they're well aware of the years of effort the parents have put into disciplining their son. And now at the end of that long process for the protection of the whole community, the leaders of the time decide the death sentence is called for. Notice the parents don't do this. They essentially turn their son in and the authorities come to this verdict. And I should point out, there's no record in scripture of this ever being carried out. So if it happened at all, it must have been very rare. It's clearly the ultimate last resort. But even if this was an unused option, the fact that it's included here gives us insight into the incredible importance that God puts on respect for parents. That importance is set out in the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honoring your father and mother is the way of life. In the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, he repeats both the command and the promise. So today, the command has not lessened in any degree. And this nuclear option in Deuteronomy 21 serves to show the importance of the command. And it should cause us to sit up a little bit if our parents are still alive. If they are, then whether you're 10 or 25 or 55, you owe them respect. Now, the way you show respect will almost certainly look different at each of those stages of life. At the age of 10, we show respect primarily by obeying our parents or carers and doing it with a good attitude. At 25, we honor them by giving appropriate weight to their counsel and advice. At 55, we honor them by making sure they are well cared for and valued. The New Testament says anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And isn't that a burning issue 
today where many older parents are treated like they're a nuisance. In a local care home, I saw a sign on the wall that said, be nice to your kids, they'll choose your nursing home. And yes, that's sort of funny, but actually it's very, very sad. It's sad that many parents do, in fact, dread what's ahead of them at the hands of their kids. But God's people are not to be like that. No matter how messy family situations become, no matter how ugly and strained relationships become, we owe our parents respect. And even in the worst situations, we have to find ways of showing respect while they're still here. And I say that knowing that some of you are in circumstances where that is incredibly difficult. Where it's been a long struggle for you. Because the relationship has broken down. And it may genuinely be through no fault of yours. So there's no one way to do this. And sometimes there is very little that can be done. But if you and I are determined to honor God, there will be some way we can demonstrate respect for our parents. And then finally, our respect must stretch even to those who do not deserve to live. Verse 22. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The death penalty does not exist in our country. It was abolished for murder in 1965. As a technicality, it continued to exist beyond that for treason, but that was abolished in 1998. And no doubt there will be divided opinions among us here this morning as to whether the death penalty is a useful deterrent or not. In Israel, as we've seen, there was provision for the death penalty. These verses are about what happens after the death penalty has been carried out. There was a long-standing practice in the ancient world of hanging up the corpses of executed criminals as a warning to others. Don't do what they did or this could happen to you. And we did our share of that here in England. In medieval times, the heads of criminals were impaled on London Bridge for the same reason. The Old Testament does not say that is to be done. It says, if it is done, the body can't be left there overnight. Why? Well, because even the worst criminals must be treated with some humanity. They may not deserve to live, but they still deserve to have their humanity recognized. 
Even the worst offenders are not to be treated as subhuman. In this case, they're not to be left to have their bones picked clean by scavenging animals. They're to be buried. When Jesus was crucified, it was this command that led to him being taken down from the cross before nightfall. And notice how as our passage ends here, we've come full circle, actually. We started in verse 1 with the concern to take sin seriously by dealing with the guilt of murder. The leaders of Israel killed a heifer and they asked God to look on the animal they had offered up and to atone for their sin. Here in verse 23, out of respect for the dead criminal's humanity, his body is to be taken down from the wooden pole And yet, we're told, the fact that he hung there at all showed God's disgust at the sin that put him there. Verse 23 says, anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. His death was the just punishment for his sin. Sin brought God's curse down on his head. It wasn't the pole that brought God's curse. He hung on the pole because he was cursed. Our passage as we've gone through it has helped us see how we can honor God in a messy world. But now it also helps us see how God himself has honored this messy world. What I mean is, this world is messy because of us. Sure, you and I didn't make all of the mess, but we have all contributed to it. We've put in our own share of sin to the mess. So God owes us nothing at all. And yet he chose to show us incredible honor by taking action to atone for our sin. We said earlier that sacrificial animals can't do that. Even as the ancient Israelites offered those animals, they did it with a plea that God himself would atone for their sin. And he did. As we read on in the Bible, we discover that Jesus Christ is the only son of God the Father. He is the heir, the rightful heir to all that belongs to his Father. And he is the perfectly obedient son of his father. And yet Jesus came to earth to take the place of the disinherited, disobedient son. And Jesus' enemies even quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 21 in their accusations against him. They pointed at Jesus and they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Like the rebellious son who deserved to die. And that wasn't true. Jesus was innocent of all sin, but he willingly took our sin on himself. And with our sin on his shoulders, he died under God's curse. Hung up on a pole, a cross, in disgrace. And he did it for us. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And in another place, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father and the Son worked together. Together they paid the greatest price so that we, despite of our sin and our mess, could receive honor that is pure grace. We are the stubborn and rebellious son. We deserve God's curse. But we can become righteous. We can be in the right with God because of what Jesus has done. And the cross of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. It wasn't plan B for God. It was always on God's mind. Even before he gave these instructions in the book of Deuteronomy. When Paul quoted from Deuteronomy in Galatians chapter 3 and connected it to Jesus' death, Paul was not just making a creative connection there. He was showing the cross had always been in God's plan. In his love and his determination to pour out undeserved honor on our sinful world, the Father and the Son planned for the Son to hang on the pole. Knowing what it meant. Under the curse that you and I deserved. That's how God dealt with our sin. And if you've never admitted that your sin needs to be dealt with, Will you admit it today? Will you trust in Jesus and what he's done to pay for your sin? What is it that's stopping you? Why would you turn away from such a great salvation? Is it your pride? Do you really have so much to be proud of? That you wouldn't bow before this gracious Father and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Accept your son's death in place of mine. I deserve your curse, but I come to receive your forgiveness and love. Are you too proud to do that? Don't let your silly pride ruin your life. Don't let it cut you off from the future you can have in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus and you're seeking now to live for him in your own particular messy situation, can you sense again today the wonder of his love for you? That he would enter into our mess and lift us to a place of honor welcomed as his sons and daughters, heirs now to all that he has. Let's respond together to his love. 
as we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love?